Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 12 through 26. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1789, 1789. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12-26. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Christ is risen. It was in the 18th century when German philosopher Immanuel Kant penned these words. All our knowledge begins with the senses, proceeds then to understanding, and ends with reason. There is nothing higher than reason. Now while this philosopher's first name, Immanuel, means God with us, his life work spoke a different message. For he taught that the, that the physical world or the world of reason and logic cannot possibly know or, or connect with the metaphysical, that which is above nature. And thus, one cannot truly know if God exists. Needless to say, Immanuel Kant became an agnostic, one who was uncertain of God's existence. And because of his teaching, agnosticism uh, began to take a firm hold on Western society. And yet, even Kant saw a problem with his philosophy. For he knew that a world without God would soon deteriorate into a world without morality. And without morality, civilization cannot exist. It cannot flourish. Listen to some of his reasoning. This is the logic of his argument. He said, in order for there to be civilization, people must have and live by a moral standard. 
In order for people to have a moral standard, they must have a system of justice to hold them accountable. And yet, because of man's limitations, any form of human justice will always be lacking. And we see this today in the justice system that we have. It's lacking. Therefore, man's accountability in this life is woefully limited. In fact, the only hope for true justice is if man survives the grave. He must become alive once more. But not only must he live again, but then, but then there must be a judge who can deliver that pure justice. But in order for a judge to deliver pure justice, this person must be perfectly righteous. He, he must have a perfect sense of morality. But there's more. Not only must he be perfectly righteous, but he must also be omniscient. He must be all-knowing, lest he misunderstands the crimes that are put before him. But not only must he be omniscient, but he must be omnipotent as well. He must be all-powerful. Otherwise, he would not be able to dispense such justice. Well, I hope by now that you can see where Kant was going with this. In order for civilization to flourish, people must live as if they believe that God exists and that he will one day hold them accountable in the next life. And yet for Kant, his, his reason dictated to him that such a God was unknowable. Now you can imagine the quandary that, that, that put him in. He wanted people to be guided by their reason, a reason that says that God is unknowable, but he also wanted them to live as if God existed, one who will one day judge them at the resurrection. And the reason he wanted this was for the sake of human flourishing. Now, the problem with such a philosophy is that nobody wants to live a double life. Nobody wants to live inconsistently to what they believe. Eventually, one will have to give way to the other. But there is a deeper flaw in Kant's thinking, and it lies in his premise, in, in his belief that there is nothing higher than reason. And it's not that logical thinking is bad, because it's not. But logic itself originates from something greater, from someone greater. And yet, even though Kant denied that God could be known, his, his reasoning rightly understood something of vital importance. The necessity of a resurrection. For without it, justice is lost. And it is in our passage today where we see another kind of reasoning. Another argument, if you will, that, that comes to the same conclusion that the resurrection is vital. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It is here where we see a major issue that was going on in the church in Corinth. For there were some who were teaching and saying that there was no resurrection of the dead. Now, what do they mean by this? 
Were they, were they saying that Jesus had not been raised? Perhaps. But what they were really getting at was that, that they believed that they themselves would not be raised from the dead. That after they died, that their, their spirits would simply go to Jesus, and then that was it. That there would be no bodily resurrection. What you have to understand is that, that this church in Corinth was in the heart of the Greco-Roman world. And thus they were influenced by Greco-Roman thinking. And it was the Greeks who developed a disdain for material things. You see, it was another philosopher, a philosopher named Plato, who said that the, the material reality was just a shadow of the spiritual reality. And because of this, it was of an inferior quality. In fact, he went so far to say that, that the human body was simply a prison. Well, after centuries of this teaching, it, it is easy to see how these Greek Christians could become confused when it came to the resurrection. Some of them even denying such a teaching. And so when they thought of the afterlife, they thought of it in terms of only a spiritual reality, a spiritual existence. Unfortunately, some of this Platonic philosophy is still with us to this day. How many of you have ever heard someone say something like this? I can't wait to shed this physical body. Or how about this? I look forward to the day when I, when I am free from, from my cumbersome frame. Such sayings come from either a lack of biblical understanding or just a short-sighted view of God's eternal plan for his people. For as we will find out, a bodily resurrection truly is the great hope of the Christian. Now, if you were there for our sunrise service this morning, you, you would have been reminded of one of our monthly confessions. We looked at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And, and it, is, it is there where the Apostle Paul gives to us the gospel message in its simplest form. He was reminding the church of the gospel that he himself preached to them. A message that they needed to stand firm upon, lest they believed in vain. And what is this gospel? Look at, look at verses 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. When we think of things that are of first importance, we typically think of our physical well-being, do we not? And what is that, that two-worded saying that we often use? Safety first. But according to Paul, there is something that trumps even our safety. The gospel. It is this message of Jesus' death and his resurrection that is of first importance. But why is this the case? How can, how can the gospel trump safety? Because guarding one's physical well-being can only guarantee life for a short amount of time. But the gospel brings life 
eternal. And what is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins and that he rose from the dead. It is on Good Friday where we consider the first aspect of the gospel, of Jesus dying for our sins. And certainly, this is of vital importance. For we need an atonement to cover our iniquities. And Jesus is the only one who could take that burden on. For the blood of bulls could not appease the wrath of God. They fall short of a true sacrifice. But Christ, who is that spotless Lamb of God, who is the only one who lived a sinless life, He is a worthy sacrifice. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And He is the only one who could pay such a penalty, which is exactly what He did upon that cross. He took upon Himself the sins of the world as He bled and died for you and for me. But according to Paul, that message is only the first half of the gospel. For Jesus rose from the dead three days later. And it is this truth that Paul grabs onto in our passage for today. Look at Paul's argument, starting in verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If for only this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Here Paul lays out the foolishness of this notion that there is no resurrection. And the way he does this is through a type of logical argumentation called reductio ad absurdum which in the Latin means reduction to absurdity. It is when you take another's truth claim and, and play it out to its absurd and logical end. In other words, Paul took the assertion that there is no resurrection and then demonstrated what that would mean for these Christians if it were true. Look at, look at how he laid this out. First, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Do you see that? If you're going to claim a, a universal truth, then it must be true for all. And so if there is no resurrection, then Jesus' body must still be in that grave. But it gets worse. For if Christ is not raised then the gospel message that Paul preached is both false and useless. And if the gospel is false, then it makes him and all the other apostles out to be liars. For they have become false witnesses concerning God. Next, 
If the gospel is wrong, if, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith as a Christian, well, that's worthless as well. For you are believing a lie and putting your trust in a dead Messiah. And if he is a dead Messiah, if Christ has not been raised, then he has no power to rescue you. And if your Messiah is powerless, if he cannot help you, then we see another thing, that you are still dead in your sins. For there is no risen Lord who is able to release you from the chains of slavery that is sin. But there's more. For, for if that is the case, if there is no freedom from sin, then those who have fallen asleep, all of your loved ones who have perished, they too are lost. For they died in their transgressions, believing in a false hope, believing in a false God. But finally, if, if all of this is true, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then you are to be pitied more than all men. For you are wasting your life serving a dead man, all while making certain of your own destruction. Dear friends, do you see it? Everything hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if he has not been raised, then there is no hope. Just this horrifying picture of death and decay. So in one sense, Paul was in agreement with Kant, who, who thought that life without a resurrection would be a life void of human flourishing. But for Paul, this absence of a resurrection was, a, was an even greater threat. For, for it would cause more damage than just societal breakdown. For without Christ risen from the dead, without that risen Savior, everyone stands condemned. Fortunately for us, these deniers of the resurrection were not correct. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ indeed has been raised from the dead. Now how could Paul be so certain that, 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 that Jesus was alive? How could he make this bold claim without hesitation? There are at least three reasons for this. And the first can be found in what we read earlier back in, back in verses 3 and 4. That, that matter of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The, the, the key phrase here is according to the scriptures. Paul believed that Christ had risen because the Old Testament spoke to the matter. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. I hope you see that in Isaiah's passage, this suffering servant is a clear reference to Jesus. But what does Isaiah say? That after his soul suffers, then he would see the light of life. That he would live again. But Isaiah goes further. Look, look at verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here we see that this suffering servant would be given a portion among the great and that he would divide the spoils. And why does he do this? Because he poured out his life unto death. But if he was dead... How could he give a portion and divide the spoils? Because he is alive once more. But it was not only the scriptures that gave Paul his certainty. Look, look at 1 Corinthians 15 verses 5 through 7. Here he is talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. You see, there were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. People whom the, 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 the church in Corinth could still talk to to verify this claim. Now, for a Jew, verification only needed two or, or three witnesses. But Paul speaks of over 500. In other words, there was overwhelming evidence. But there was one more reason for Paul's certainty, and, and we see this in the very next verse. Look at, look at verse 8. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The resurrected Jesus appeared to this least of apostles. Paul witnessed his risen Savior. And that is why he said Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. That he is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. He saw Jesus. Jesus came to him. Dear friends, this is not some idle claim. This is not your Bigfoot sighting or, or speculations about UFOs. There is tangible evidence that Jesus is alive. That, that his resurrection is not a myth, but a historical fact. And to deny the resurrected Jesus is to deny the Christian faith. But why is the resurrection so important? Why is it necessary for salvation? Look at verses 21 and 22. 
For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. This is why the resurrection is so important. Just as death came through Adam, life comes through Christ. Listen, before, before Jesus, Adam was our representative. He was the best of us. And yet through Adam came only sin and death. But now we have Jesus, this second Adam, this better Adam. And he has broken through death's doors, bringing victory over all of our enemies. You see, we needed a representative who could defeat our sin. We needed a man who could overthrow death itself. We needed a champion, one who could bring victory to our helpless situation. And only the God-man, Jesus Christ, could fill those shoes. And, and look at how he does it. Look, look at our final verses. Look at verses 23 through 26. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here we see the order of Christ's victory. First, Jesus has been raised. He has rolled the stone away and has come out of that grave with a physical body that is now imperishable. And he has taken that physical body and now resides in heaven above where he is reigning from on high. It is from there that he is defeating all of our enemies as he grows his kingdom through the spreading of the gospel message. But there will come a day when he will bodily return. And when he does, he will bring with him the souls of those who have fallen asleep. Their bodies will also be raised and they will become like their king. And it is at that time at Christ's return, when death will finally be destroyed. He is the last enemy that Jesus will do away with. Look, look, at, look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 55. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with, with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? If there is no resurrection, 
If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then that's it. We stay in the ground with our bodies decaying until there is nothing left. No life, no hope, no victory. But Christ has indeed been raised. And that is why we celebrate this day. For in resurrection there is hope. In resurrection there is life. In resurrection there is victory. Christ is risen. Let us pray. Father, we are, we are so amazed at the, at the victory of your Son. He has brought to us a great, great hope. A hope that surpasses all else. For without the resurrection, we would all be truly lost. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruit of all who believe in him. Aid us as we rejoice in this fact. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may walk in, in the newness of life that Christ has won for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.